Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Uh, we're going to start a series this, this week, a new series, and um, I'm calling it Overgrown Paths. And, and really, I, I was reminded of a scripture a few months ago when I was walking on a small path that I had made through a wooded, overgrown area in my backyard. And the year before, I had cut down some small trees. I got rid of some of those thorn bushes that grow all over Iowa. How many know what I'm talking about? If you deer hunted in Iowa, you've been caught up in the thorns, right? Cut up a little bit by them. And I cleared some of those out. I cleared some of the old, old leaves and the sticks that had fallen for years. And, and now that I was on the path again after a year, after so much time, I was surprised to see how much of it had grown back over in just a year. The little stumps I left now had branches growing out of them. Uh, and the thorns were back. They grow back fast. It's amazing. Not as tall as before, but they were definitely back and definitely full of those little stickers. And although I could still make out where I'd made the path, it wasn't as easy to walk on is when I had left it the year before. It was an old path. It was a good path. But because I'd stopped using it, it had become overgrown. And this is what jogged my memory in reference to the foundational scripture of the series that I'm going to be preaching over the next several weeks. Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path, and you will find rest for your souls. But you reply, no, that's not, what, that's not the road we want. And as I was thinking about my overgrown path in the Scripture, I just, I just read to you, I, I began to think of those old paths, those old godly ways that seem so ingrained into our culture that a majority of people just naturally traveled on them. And really, it's, let's, let's, narrow this in, uh, let's narrow this whole thing down to principles. The old paths of practiced biblical principles that were ingrained, as I said, in, into our society. Old paths that brought about success and blessings to our individual lives, our churches, our communities, and even our nation. And I would venture to say that like my path, some of those paths from yesteryear are a bit overgrown. They've been neglected and even abandoned in some cases. And when you look at a crossroads and, and, and you, you're, you've come to that in your life and you feel a little bit lost or even just unsure which way to go, it's a good time to look back through the neglected paths, opening them back up and following them may be the very thing that gets you back home to where you belong. So that's it, church. I, I want to spend some time talking about these old godly paths that when traveled upon are proven to bring us to a place of success and blessing. How many would like to be in a place of success and blessing? And I know that means a lot of things to different people, and we could get into debates about that. I'm not talking about necessarily financial success, okay? I'm just talking about success in general and, and a place of blessing, over the next few weeks, we're going to go back to some of those principles and rediscover some of those old paths and rediscover their value. And uh, the first one this week is the old path, are you ready for it? Biblical work ethic. 
biblical work ethic. Turn to your neighbor and say, ooh, this is going to be good. <laughs> Turn to your other neighbor and say, I, I hope. <laughs> now, I, I realize I've got to be really careful here. When you get into these subjects that could be kind of dicey, you, you, you run the risk as a pastor of ticking everybody off in the church. So um, if you're going to get ticked off, you know, so be it. I just want to preach the word this morning. I ain't going to apologize for it. I don't want to come across as accusing, so please know that that's not my heart this morning. But from the beginnings of mankind, there has always been those who are, in fact, lazy. Right? There always have been. Those that refuse to work hard to accomplish the task at hand. Those that measure everything in reference to how much effort it will take and then decide that most things require too much effort. And I'm talking about those that do the bare minimum of what's required and, and, and just are, are never really willing to go the extra mile when it comes to work. Not just career work, I'm talking work as a general thing. But lately it seems that the number of people that live this way and are fine with not putting forth a solid effort outnumber those that really do work hard. I'm, and I'm making a statement here by by even just having this principle of biblical work ethic as one of our points in this series, one of our old paths, I, I'm saying it's an old path that has become overgrown. And it's not that I think hardworking people have ceased to exist, because I know they're out there. It just seems that it's harder to find those kinds of people today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And those that can say 60 to 70 years ago really know what I'm talking about. And I know that there are differences in people's abilities to perform because of personal situations and even physical limitations. Please, please don't think I'm pointing the finger at you, okay? But I'm referring more to the attitude within individuals that either gives them the foundation to have a great work ethic or lures them to a place of entitlement where they believe they are automatically owed. I see this all over. I think you do too. Let's just look at the Word of God and see what it says about the old biblical path of work ethic, okay? Let, let's look at this. I'm just going to throw out a bunch of scriptures here because it's a good idea to look at what the Word of God says and then devise how you feel and how you live and how you look at everything through that lens of the Word of God, right? The Word of God tells you how to live. It's our, it's our blueprint for life. So number one, Proverbs 13, 4, the, the, the soul of the sluggard... Has anyone ever been called a sluggard before? I mean, have you ever been called that? You're a sluggard. That would be like the worst thing you could say to me. You're a sluggard. I just, I don't know. That's just terrible to me. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. What does that mean? It means you put your whole heart into it. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Important. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 14.23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. I'm just letting that one sink in a little bit. I know a lot of people talk a big talk, right? But do they put the work behind it? 
2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Just reading scripture. You don't work, you don't eat. That's what that says. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Do you know what Sheol is? It's a valley of death. It's really a picture of hell. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Wow. Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. And I think worthless pursuits here are, are kind of like get-rich-quick get things that don't require a lot of work or effort or even risk. Most of you know the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, don't you? His father gave him the coat how his brothers became jealous of him, and how he was the youngest and seemingly favored child. <laughs> and we know that how he was sold into slavery by those same brothers and how he ended up being second in command over all of Egypt. You guys know the story well. Eventually saving his family uh, through a very bad famine in the land. But the story within the story that we don't often think about in Joseph's life is that he was, and I may be speculating here a little bit, so don't, 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 don't fire me as your pastor for saying this, but I think Joseph was a, a spoiled brat. When I read the story and I'm going, I'm asking questions, I'm going, and this, this kid's a little spoiled. Yeah, he's the youngest, and we know the youngest are usually spoiled. How many young, youngest children do we have in here today? Amy, yep. Um, yep, I said. I'm just kidding. Are you spoiled as youngest children, do you think? No, your parents have just worked out all the problems, and so you're the perfect child, right? Yeah, that, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> I think he was a spoiled brat. And while his brothers worked, I mean, think about this. His brothers were working, right? While they're working, he's receiving these awesome gifts from his dad. While they worked, he would go out and tell them of the dreams and the visions he would have of, hey, guys, I mean, this is how I picture it. I could be wrong. Maybe I am. This isn't probably good Bible teaching. But they're out working the fields. I, I see them working out there, and he comes up and, hey, guys, guess what? I had a dream, and you're all going to bow down and worship me. You're all going to bow down and, and to me and honor me, and I'm going to be your leader. That, just wasn't good. that wouldn't go over so good with the older siblings, I wouldn't think. While his brothers worked, he was doing these things. He was maybe, I'm, I'm, I want to be careful in saying this, I think he was a slacker when it came to work. That's, that's me reading between the lines. And it took maybe being sold into slavery and then jail time for him to learn his lesson. I wonder if he would have avoided some of the hardship if he would just gone out to work with his brothers. Like maybe his dad was wrong and his dad was spoiling him and he would say, Dad, you know, I know you say I don't have to work, but it's wrong of me not to work, I'm going to go out and work. I, I also think this of Joseph. There is no way he would have been able to become second in command of Egypt if he wouldn't have learned his lesson and became a hard worker. There's no way he would 
be risen to the level that he was risen to, that he rose to in, in Potiphar's house if he hadn't been a good, solid worker. So somewhere along the line, there was a change. It doesn't get specific about it in Scripture, but you see it. I think about King David. How many know he was a man after God's own heart? How many know that? Raise your hand. He's a man after God's own heart. How many like to be like King David, right? Awesome guy. But let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And we read that, we don't think much of it. But David, if you look at it, decided to have someone else do the work for a change. He stayed home. And this is when he became tangled up in his own lust. It was right after this that he was tempted um, while he was up all night. And why would somebody be up at night? Why would someone be up, right? Because they slept all day. You ever do that? You sleep in way too long, and then it's like 1, 2 in the morning, and you're up, and you're wide awake. And you don't know what to do because, you know, your wife's next to you or your husband's next to you, and they're snoring. And you're not awake, or you're not, you're not sleeping, and you can't sleep. You're awake. So I think this is what's going on. So he goes, wanders out on the roof, and then he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he's like, hey, you know, I'm going to, I want her. I want that. You know, King David was smitten down to his socks when his eyes caught that Bathsheba fox. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? He saw her. He wanted her. He went and sent for her. And you know, this is interesting too. When a king sends for you back then and says, I want you, I want her, she really don't have a choice. You can't say no to the king. It's not like she was like, oh, King David, sure, let's sleep together. You don't see that attitude in there, do you? You just know that King David said, I want that, go get her. They got her, he got her, and they slept with her, or he slept with her. I don't know. To me, that sounds a lot like rape. King David, a man after God's own heart, rapist? We know he's a murderer because then he went and had her husband killed, right? So he could cover up his sin because she got pregnant. He put him at the front of the fighting, her husband, and had made sure he was dead. All this terrible stuff. But it all stemmed from David not going to work. In the spring of the year when kings normally go off to war, that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to work. He stayed home. I think I'll relax. I think I'll sit this one out. I think I'll just put my feet up. It's about work, church. Right there, that was about work. And I, I wanted to say this. Do you realize that the bed of the sluggard will always eventually become the bed of lust? It just will. A strong biblical work ethic our willingness to work hard and go above and beyond is crucial to walking in blessing and success. It's crucial. Let's think about the parable of the talents for a second. The master leaves and gives his servant portions of money, talents, subsequent to their abilities. Well, that doesn't seem fair. That's what they did in the Bible. When he returns after being away a long time, he finds that two of his servants have doubled their money, but one of them just buried his, right? Right? You know the story. He wanted, he wanted to make sure he didn't lose it. 
Listen to what the master tells his servant in Matthew 25, 26, the, the one that buried his talent. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. And then he goes on, and he, pray, well, he praises the two before this. He praises the two servants that doubled his money and gives them more. But the lazy servant's talents were taken from him and given to the one who was originally given five. The master then says in verse 30, and this is so interesting, throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lazy, and then look at what was said to him because of being lazy. The phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth appears seven times in the New Testament. I don't know if you know this. And every time it alludes to what will happen to the unrighteous at the end of the age. It describes what the unrighteous will have to look forward to. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is gnashing of teeth anyway? Like, I don't know. Like, so overwhelming with pain that you can't, and anger and frustration, gnashing teeth. It just doesn't sound pleasant. Wouldn't you agree that the Bible has a lot to say about working diligently? Whether directly or indirectly. That having a solid work ethic is a biblical concept. Let me take you back to Genesis. Let's go back to the beginning. In chapter 2, we see some details in reference to God's creation of mankind. It says this in Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. That word cultivate... If you take it back to original language, literally means to work it. So let's put that in the, in, the, in, the, in the phrase. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. He took the man and put him in paradise to work. Interesting thing. He wanted him to be productive. We all know that it says after God made the woman that they were to be reproductive, Right? We know that part, that they were to be fruitful and multiply, but we don't often bring attention to the fact that man was created to work. And it seems to me that this was one of God's divine purposes for all of us was to work. When we read about the fall of man in Genesis 3, there's some interesting things to note in regards to the punishment given to Adam as the first man. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor, you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it, it shall grow for you. Yet, yet you, shall eat, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground, because from it is where you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. I don't know, I always love saying this, but... Isn't it cool that, man, or that woman is from man and man is from dirt? Just an interesting thing to think about. Man came from dirt and woman came from man. So this all, all is to, to, to mankind as a whole. But created to work, that, that, that's us. Mankind created to work. But now, because of sin and the fall, work would become toilsome. He put him in the garden to work before he sinned. After he sinned, he says, work will become toilsome. The word for hard labor in that scripture I just read is literally painful, hardship, toil, or sorrowful. Has anyone ever gone to work and felt painful or felt pain, felt toil, felt that work was sorrowful? Anybody in here? Or do you just, just like, woo, it's time for work? Work 
you were created to do. The toil of it, the hardship of it, came after the fall. That was the punishment. That is why, I think, it feels so good to work hard on something, produce something, make something, and you're done, and it's a hard day's work. Like, maybe you just worked in your yard all day long, and you had time to do it, and you got done, and, you're, and you just kicked your feet up, and you're like, look what my hands have created, you know? You feel so good about it, right? You feel so good. That's a good thing. That's a right thing. That's how you were created. I mean, after all, you're just being like your dad, right? He created everything. So when you're creating, you're being like your heavenly father who created. You're created in his image. That productive, producing part of work is legit. But when sin entered, it became toilsome. Now you had to work just to eat. Now work became hard. It became painful. It became not a choice of something you get to do. It's something you have to do. Total difference. Total difference. Sin always taints what God originally intended for us. It always destroys and always kills. And so now with all this talk of having a strong work ethic, looking at biblical basis for what we're going to say here this morning, let me throw something else into the mix. There are those in the church that err on the other side of this. They work too much. Turn to your spouse and say, I don't think they're talking about you. <laughs> or the person next to you. <laughs> From the outside, they seem to have a strong biblical work ethic, but inside they have made work their God. They forsake their family responsibilities and even their personal relationship time with the Lord. They've slipped into trying to attain the whole world. And we know Mark 8.36 says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? So we, there's, there's a balance here. And, and, and clearly having a biblical work ethic is a balancing act. Pa Pastor Jared tipped me off about a new trend. I was talking to him about this sermon, and he tipped me off about this new trend that's emerging within our culture. I had never heard of it, and some younger people probably have, but they call it quiet quitting. Quiet quitting is where unsatisfied employees put forth the least amount of effort possible to maintain their job. They do it as little as they can get away with, but, keep, but still keep their paychecks. They approach work with the notion that the company doesn't own them and they are not about to sacrifice their lives for their employer. I want you to think about all this in reference to the scriptures we just read. Because this is how you develop biblical worldview. This is how you see things, right? This affects everything in your life if, if you really think about it and you meditate on it a little bit. Let's face it, as an employee, we should not have to put our lives on the altar of sacrifice just to make our employers wealthier. True or false? My boss don't own me. Who's my boss? God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I work as unto the Lord. But who's my boss here on earth? All of you. Pretty much, right? The board? My wife. <laughs> Best answer yet, right? I shouldn't have to put my whole life on the altar of sacrifice just to make my employer wealthier. On the other hand, I shouldn't expect to keep my job if I'm only trying to do the bare minimum. So there's two points of tension here, like two extremes of a pendulum swing, and, and the truth of how we should live is somewhere right smack dab in the middle, right? 
The quiet quitters say that your self-worth as a person shouldn't be defined by your labor. And I agree with that, but not every employer is saying that your worth is based on your labor just because you're expected to show up and be productive. See, we're so good at swinging all the way the other way to make our point, right? Like, we overcorrect everything. Well, my employer is a tyrant, so I'm going to do the least amount as possible and still make him pay me. That is wrong. I mean, let, unions were created to empower employees, right? Against tyrannical employers. But what if your employer isn't a tyrant? Should you be forced to be in a labor union that rallies against a good employer? Workers who work hard should be rewarded. Employers who work hard and try to improve the lives of their employees should be rewarded too. Most business owners didn't just get something handed to them, by the way. I'm, I'm throwing a lot of stuff out here, and your mind, I hope, is going. Because how am I living? How am I thinking? How am I talking even about my, my employer or my employees? Most business owners didn't just get something handed to them. They worked hard, they sacrificed, they took risks, and because of their diligence, they have created jobs that sustain whole families. In that aspect, employers should be, you know, Give them a round of applause, right? Because that's awesome. They took risks. They did things so somebody could have a job. But there seems to be a war on employers and corporations, even to the point that, is, that it's assumed that everyone who owns a company, or, or they must have done it by stepping on every, and rolling over everybody else to get there. And that's just not true. As if having success in business and being financially secure is automatically evil. There is a notion out there that if you are successful in business, you are an evil person. That is wrong. Man, what if you follow all the days of your life that you work hard? Some of the scriptures we just talked about. You work hard. You're diligent. You put in the extra time. You put in the extra hours. You're not about stepping on others. You're about pulling other people up, right? What if that's you and you end up owning a company? Are you evil then because you own the company? There's many in society that say, would say you are. See, this is the kind of thinking, these old paths that have become overgrown. It used to be, wow. Now, that being said, how many know there's employer, employers that do kick people to the curb and treat people like dirt? That's true, too. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so, so the phrase goes, right? Not everybody gets labeled that because there's one bad guy. James 3.16, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. I've met a lot of people, both rich and poor. I've seen wealth corrupt. I've seen it empower individuals to do wonderful, amazing things for God's kingdom. Maybe it's a good thing to say this. Money, and we're, we're kind of focusing on that for a second here. Money is not bad or good. It's neutral. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. How many would like some more money? <laughs> I don't know how I should answer. <laughs> how many know you can do a lot more with money than without it? What does money give you? It gives you choices. Choices to help that guy. Choices to help that gal. Choices to give to a missionary. Choices to give at church. It also gives you choices in reference to, I can control others with it. Well, that would be evil and that would be wrong. 
And if that's in your heart, God's probably not going to bless you with a bunch of it. And yet some people do get it, right? It's all this mixed up thing. And let's get back to Genesis just for a second. What wrecked it all? Sin. Sin messed it all up. Most often I found out it is those that have a lack due to their own unwillingness to work that become envious and in some cases even materialistic. To have is not to be materialistic. It's when those things, and I'm talking maybe predominantly Americans here, but it's, it's when you have, when, when those things that you have or don't have constantly occupy your thoughts, that's materialism. I've met wealthy people that never think about stuff. I've met poor people that think only about stuff. Well, that's because they're poor and they don't have anything. You understand the tensions here? Where's the truth in all this? Man, you got to go to the Word. And you got to think about it in your own... You got to look at that, your life through the lens of the Word. Right? Envy is jealousy. That scripture is jealousy. Strife, where it's there in James, is selfish ambition. The Greek word means, and listen to this, right, this is right out of Strong's Concordance. I think this is hilarious. Strife means electioneering or intriguing for office, partisanship, and having a fractious spirit. Work ethic is one of those subjects, guys. It's personal, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it has political and national implications all the way around. It affects every part of your life, really. And when you read through these scriptures and you meditate on them, it's like so many other issues that we face today. If we don't land in a place of balance, we could really hurt ourselves. The old overgrown paths of working hard, blessing our employer, doing our best as unto the Lord, while at the same time not making our work our God, not falling into being a workaholic, these balanced paths have become overgrown, and they're now partisan issues, even politically. We find ourselves in the midst of so many fractious factions. Say that, fractious factions. It's fun to say. (laughs) It's fun to say. And these fractious factions, they they demand that we declare our allegiance to one camp of thought or another, don't they? You believe like I believe, or else. And if we aren't careful, this is why this is so important. Follow me here. If we're not careful, we will obliterate our ability to have any sort of platform of ministry because we're so busy identifying with certain camps of thought. Balance is key when it comes to posturing ourselves to be heard, to have a voice. Balance. Let me give you an example, and this isn't even in my notes. This mask thing that went on during COVID, it's pretty much to an end now, except you see a few wearing masks. I I, I can get, I I could really hurt, I could, my staff's going, oh boy, what's he going to say? You're trying to follow governing authorities. We have a good governor. She doesn't make a mandatory in churches. But we want to keep people safe, and we don't want to be the church. And I'm talking, this is past, so I can talk about it now, right? Are you following me? Is it okay to talk about this? Right. 
So what do you do? Do you make it mandatory? You got to consider where you're at. We're in Indianola, Iowa. It's not Minneapolis, right? Some of you are, thank God, right? This whole row is from Minneapolis right here, so. <laughs> so what do you do as a pastor? Do you make it mandatory? Because I had people come and say, are you, man- are you mandating mass? I'm like, I will not mandate mass. I will not do it. But I also won't make fun of or ostracize or put down those that want to wear masks. Well, pick a side. You want me to pick a side? I just did. Balance. I don't see anything in Scripture about wearing masks. There's stuff about following governing authorities. That I, I know that's a hard one. I, trust me, I know. I don't see anything about masks. So, you know, we had sections where we, every other row kind of thing, we had, we had label, you know, things on the chairs, and some of you just threw the labels away, and that's fine. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't going to police it. Wasn't going to police it. So we walked through it in balance. And is that saying neutral? Is that, is that being a, a wishy-washy person? Do I, have to, do I have to jump into a camp of thought in order? And some of you are going, well, I, I want to tell you about masks. I, I, don't, I don't even care. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. We could split a church over that. Is that an issue we're splitting the church over? So why do it? I call that Wisdom. And there is churches that absolutely split over it. How important is it for you to be right? You know what? In heaven someday, there's going to be a whole section of people. One, we're going to have a special meeting about this, right, in heaven. And God's going to tell us who is actually right in all of it. <laughs> right? I'm not a mask guy. I don't love wearing them. I didn't, I didn't love wearing them. I don't necessarily believe in them. But it doesn't mean I'm going to make fun of anybody that does. Just one area, I'm getting off track here a little bit, but honestly, these fractious factions, I mean, they're all over the place. It's what's dividing our country right now, and it's leaking into the church, and it divides the church, all these different fractious factions. Decide where you stand. Declare what side your, your, your allegiance is to. Is it in Scripture? Does it make me more... Does it, does it posture me in a way, if I declare my position, does it posture me in a way that, that makes my voice more heard to the world so I can have a bigger platform to preach from? Because if it doesn't, I'm not interested. Well, you're just being lukewarm. No, I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back and taking as many people as I can with him. And if a stupid declaration of where I stand on a dumb issue that doesn't matter keeps me from being able to talk to somebody about Jesus and them hearing me, well, that's their fault. They should be listening, or they should be acting like you, or they should be hearing what you have to say because that's truth, and blah, blah, You know? I just want to win some to Jesus. That's it. That's it. Now, if it's a biblical, moral issue that's blatant in the Word of God, different story. You don't, you don't, make, you don't become neutral on those things ever. Right? right. Those, are, those are solid as the day is long. They are just, you don't budge. Okay. Notice that we are to remain, we are not to remain neutral or lukewarm or divided within ourselves. A house divided against itself can't stand. 
But we are to remain biblically balanced on all these types of things, even work. Rich people are not automatically evil. Poor people are not automatically unblessed. Wealthy people who provide jobs may or may not be tyrannical. Those who have less are not automatically more deserving. Well, they have less. They deserve something. Not necessarily. All these things come into play. Those who work hard will be blessed, yes, financially, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be rich. Sin within those who are wealthy and those who have less will always taint and mess up what God has intended, always. And these are real-life issues, church, they are, and, and they are dealt with in the Scriptures. After all, Scriptures, uh, the ones we just read and went over, they should tell you where we should land on these things. How should all this affect our lives? I'm going to go through this really quick because I'm running out of time. Number one, this is what I got from all those scriptures. This is what I'm telling you. Work hard is under the Lord. Work hard is under the Lord, number one. How many agree that's true? That's a good thing, right? Even if it's for an employer that you don't care for. I'm sure Joseph didn't think Potiphar was all that, but he worked hard. Show up 15 minutes early, stay 15 minutes late. Don't allow them to pay you for that time. Just bless them. That was one of the scriptures I read. It was in the book of Hesitations. No. <laughs> Wasn't directly in scripture that, saying that, but you know what? That's a good practice because that means you're honoring your employer for giving you a job. I'm so tired of this. I work for you, so you owe me. No, I give you a job. Or you gave me a job, so I owe you. That's how I was raised. Were you raised that way? That was the old path I, I walked down as I was being raised up. That guy gave me a job. I better shut my mouth and do my work. He's not tyrannical. He's just the boss. Work hard is under the Lord. Bless your employer. Number two, set up your own boundaries. I got that from those scriptures. Don't just be a quiet quitter. Be realistic and honest with your boss about what he or she can expect from you as an employee. It's your responsibility to set up your own boundaries. Don't get mad at everyone else for your inability to set up and communicate your personal boundaries. And I, I think it's interesting, you take on a job and, you, and you're in the interview and you say, well, what's expected of me? That's a great question. Because I will meet those expectations if, if I want the job. If the expectations are too much, don't take the job. Don't take the job if he tells you the expectations are and you don't want to live up to the expectations. And so then you complain and whine about all those expectations when they were told to you at the beginning of the job. Did you follow that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I took this job, and now he wants me to do what he told me he wanted me to do. What a tyrant. I'm going to be a quiet quitter. That's not right. Set up some boundaries. If he says, hey, I need you to work, you know, this week, every night, overtime, say, you know what? I understand your position, but I can't do that because my family's got to come first. If he says, well, I don't know how long you're going to be able to work here, say, if that's the case, then that's the case. That would be unfortunate, but my family comes first. See, that's setting up your own boundaries. It's not being nasty. It's not being mean. Say, I will bless you as, as an employer. I, I will try to bless my employer by working as hard as I can when I'm here, but I'm, I'm not going to necessarily do that, if that's one of your boundaries. If you want to make a bunch of overtime, I mean, go for it, right? Set up your own boundaries. Number three, for those that can't work traditional jobs, don't despair. Work hard in the way you can work. 
keep your hands or, or your mind working. If you're unable to work in a job situation because of physical hurdles, then find somewhere or somehow to be productive. Pray, read, write, go to the nursing homes, minister to others, work hard at that. Work hard at something. Find something to do with your time. You can't just sit there as a sluggard and, and you know, I... Todd, I'm, I'm going to pick on you. You don't mind me picking on you. You're in a wheelchair. There's things you can't do anymore, but you're not a sluggard. I mean, you can lay in bed and say, man, I don't feel like pushing myself into a wheelchair this morning, but you do it. You do it. And maybe, you can't even, maybe you're someone who, who's listening online. You can't even get out of bed. You can pray. You can work hard at something. You can occupy your mind. Don't let your mind become the mind of a slugger. Don't let your body become the body of a slugger if, if, if you have a working physical body that can do work. Do work with it. But you got to know your limitations. I get that. But that doesn't make you a sluggard. What makes you a sluggard is an attitude. I, I had an aunt, Christy. She's, uh, she lived with us for 14 years of her life. Christy was um, the 13th child in my mom's family. I um, have a lot of cousins. Uh, she had Down syndrome, and she was the joy of the family. And I actually counseled somebody once who just said, I don't like working, I don't want to work. I don't feel like working, and I don't, you know, that was their, kind of their attitude. And I was just like, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I, I think uh, Alyssa said that once to her dad when she was four years old. She, was in the, she got out of church, and she sat in the car, and he goes, what's wrong with you? And she said, I don't have any money, and I don't care to work. That was an old story that her dad used to say. And he said to her, well, there's not much I can do for you then, girl. <laughs> but she was four. I was talking to an adult who basically had the same attitude. And so I told him about my Aunt Christy. Christy, who had Down syndrome, had two jobs, and then she even had three jobs for a very short time that she kept. She didn't get paid full price for them because she had Down syndrome. She had a physical disability. And she paid her own rent. She had her own home. My brother and I, after school, would stop in and check on her. Um, this was for a season that she had her own apartment. Pretty cool. And I was telling him the story about how hard she worked with Down syndrome. And I said, who's the mentally incapacitated one in those two stories? Because I don't think it's Christy. You have two hands, two feet. Your mind's well. It's good. Why aren't you working? You know, I'm not talking about even necessarily traditional jobs. Work doing something. I, I hesitate to tell the story, but I'm just going to tell it real quick. Because I, I, and I'm not even making it necessarily, I just want for food for thought. 27 years ago, a guy came into the church I was working at in South Dakota, and he was so distraught, he was depressed, he was down on himself, he was, and, and he, he was just struggling and he goes, I, I have to admit, I have to, I have to confess something to you. I have to admit something to you. And I'm like, well, what is it? You know, I'm thinking, what's going on? And he goes, I just had to file for unemployment. And that sounds funny today because it wasn't just a, maybe a couple years ago. I remember being with an individual who was bragging about being on unemployment. It, it's, it's a total difference in our world. I'm not saying that being on unemployment is bad. I'm I, Seasonal work, I, I get it. But I've met with tons of people who didn't, like concrete workers who don't have any work in the winter. At least some of them didn't. Who didn't have anything to do. They started getting depressed. They were created to produce and be productive. So even though if you're not working, find something to do, right? I mean, I don't, whatever it would be, occupy your hands, occupy your mind. 
Number four, the concept of retirement from work. It's not really found in the Bible. You notice that? Thou shalt reach the age of 75 and thou shalt retire. Or 65 or 72 or whatever it is today. Retirement from your job is fine, but we are still called to be productive people. And I love how so many of you have retired and you often say to me that your retirement has been more work than when you worked your job. That's a good thing, I think. As long as you've got your boundaries are set and you're walking in balance, I think that's good. Number five, there's no freebies in life. You will always pay for what you get one way or the other. Getting free money or benefits seems so wonderful, doesn't it? Having your college tuition paid for by the government may be attractive. Ooh, yeah, I'm pushing that button. They're not only from Minneapolis, they're college students, right? <laughs> I have a college student as well in my house. More stimulus checks for everyone seems like a real blessing in the moment. But nothing is free, church. Freebies over time create dependencies on those giving the freebies. And those that you become dependent on will eventually have control over you. Now, thank God we can depend on him and be dependent on him. I mean, he gives us a free gift of salvation, right? And if we take it, yeah, we're giving him control over us, and that's a good thing because he's God and he's perfect. And that's okay by me. But I want you to understand something. You know, freebies aren't free. In reference to all this, this is how you develop your worldview. You look at the Word of God, you develop your thoughts and ideals based off what it says, period. It's truth, it's our source, it's our guide, it's our blueprint for life. Jeremiah 6.16 says, this is what the Lord says, stop at the crossroads and look around. Church, I think we're at, we're at a crossroads. This nation, I think the big C church, individual families as well as individuals themselves, this nation used to be a nation of producers we were productive as a people, some to a fault. But whether you are talking about individuals, the family, the church as a whole, or our nation, we have increasingly become a bunch of spectators and subsequently have produced a lot less. Biblical work ethic is a huge part of that. So how should we think about these things? We should, how should we live accordingly when it comes to working hard as unto the Lord? How do we keep balanced our scripture this morning says this, ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest, that's peace, tranquility for your soul. Following the old paths of biblical work ethic will bring rest for your soul, for your emotions, for your mind, for your will. It might even be like a little heaven on earth. How many would like a little heaven on earth? I'd like a little bit of that. Working hard is a part of that. And we can do those, we can do like those Jeremiah was prophesying to did. The end of that scripture says, but you reply, no, that's not the road we want. We want the new way. We want to do this. We want to do it our own way. Who sang that song? I did it my way. Frank Sinatra? I did it God's way. Right? That'd be fun if that was a real song. 
We can say, no, I don't want that old path. I'm going to do it my way. And if that's how you respond, that's your choice. But the word of God won't steer you wrong ever. It, ever, it, it just won't. And working hard is a big part of it in reference to what we're talking about today. Let's read it and let's let it change us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you've given us two hands and two feet. I thank you that you've given us a mind and you've given us the ability to have attitudes, good attitudes towards things. And Lord, we know that to be like you is to be productive and creative and actually work. Lord, I think about the seventh day that you rested. You rested because you worked. Maybe without work, we wouldn't even be able to define rest. So God, I ask that you would help us renew our commitment to being biblically good workers, blessing those that are over us, working hard within the church, working hard within our families, that we would just put forth effort, not do the bare minimum in any area of our life. And God, if there's areas we have been a little lazy, we've been sluggerish, if that's a word, I pray you convict us and change us. Whether it's our schoolwork, our job, even if it's working on our relationships, if we haven't put forth the effort that we should, God, you've called us to work and we want to be diligent workers. We give you praise today for your word. Change us from the inside out and help us walk in a good work ethic, in a biblical work ethic. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.